14 years and currently pastors to Pleasant Hill Free Baptist Church in Norman, Oklahoma. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Theology from Randall University and is presently working on his Master of Arts in Systematic and Philosophical Theology at the University of Nottingham in England. In addition to pastoral ministry, Jason is the Assistant Director of the School of Christian Ministry at Randall University. He lives in Norman with his wife, Roxana. We're glad to hear you live in Norman with your wife. Um, they are grateful parents of Emily, Micah, Olivia, Catherine, and Sarah. Jason. Um, I'd like to begin by um, giving thanks to Dr. Ashby for a lot of editorial help he offered me as part of this project. Um, and also thank Dr. Watts for um, urging me to extend some of my arguments in the paper. And then uh, most importantly, I'd like to thank uh, Corey Thompson for packing two neckties this week uh, when I forgot to pack one. So thank you. All right. The Marriage Covenant and Reformed Arminian Soteriology, Theological Parallels Considered. Any serious student of Scripture soon discovers that the Bible is a glorious world of symmetry, parallels, symbols, types, and signposts. Connecting these divine dots can be theologically dangerous, but it can also be joyful and rewarding work. For many, it even becomes a piece of relatively strong evidence for divine inspiration. These types and symbols are particularly prevalent in, the redempt in redemptive history. So rich are the layers, it is difficult to de deny divine intention, nor do the New Testament writers attempt to do so. These literary devices manifest God's transcendence over human history and the schemes of the evil one. I intend to demonstrate the presence of strong parallels between the covenant of marriage and the covenant of grace. To be more specific, I intend to show that the parameters of biblical marriage and divorce parallel the parameters of salvation and apostasy. Furthermore, I believe that these parallels serve as an affirmation of classical or reformed Arminian theology. To be clear, my argument is a secondary one at best. It can only complement the primary role of the direct scriptural and logical arguments of reformed Arminianism. This thesis is more about probing than proving. To rate the potential credence of this thesis, I would refer the reader to the writings of Millard Erickson, who ranks the six degrees of authority of theological statements. From the highest level of authoritativeness to the lowest, they are direct statements of Scripture, direct implications of Scripture, probable implications of Scripture, inductive conclusions of Scripture, Conclusions inferred from general revelation and outright speculation. My observations will fall into the third level. Probable implications of scripture. That is, inferences that are drawn in cases where one of the assumptions or premises is only probable are somewhat less authoritative than direct implications. While deserving respect, such statements should be held with a certain amount of tentativeness. I would strongly urge the reader to heed Erickson's advice when considering the following arguments. Genesis 2.24 and the Gospel. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Um, from this point forward, when I re- reference this, this verse, I'll always um, reference it in the King James Version for an extremely important reason, leave and cleave rhyme. Um, that's always preferable over non-rhyming verses. Uh, Genesis 2.24 is not merely a text on the nature of the marriage covenant. It must be the single most fundamental statement on marriage in all of Scripture. For it is found in its complete form in Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.5, Mark 10, 7 and 8, Ephesians 5.31. It appears once in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. As Wayne Mack points out, God presents it once before man fell into sin and three times after man fell into sin. Additionally, Paul includes a partial quotation in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Moreover, Malachi is undoubtedly alluding to Genesis 2.24 when he writes about marriage. Has not the Lord made them one? The prominence of this verse should also be placed into some theological context. Genesis 2.24 is referenced in Scripture with more frequency than are the words of Genesis 15.6, and he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And more than Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. The pattern of Genesis 2.24 is so similar to gospel parameters that it would seem an unlikely coincidence. More importantly, Paul quotes this text saying that he actually refers to Christ and the church. Holy Scripture is drawing this parallel. I will attempt to isolate three primary components found in this marriage text. They are as follows. Leaving, cleaving, and one flesh. For this covenant marriage to occur, the man must leave his father and mother. This leaving describes a total reorientation of one's life and priorities. It details the transition from one identity to another, i.e. from son to husband. The promise of a new way of life dictates that he leave the previous way of life. He must forsake the old way. Unhappy is the wife whose husband is worried about pleasing his mother. The gospel equivalent for leaving is repentance. The earliest gospel preaching was framed in the language of repentance. John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter proclaimed at Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. As the two brothers from Nazareth said, You cannot serve two masters, for friendship with the world is enmity with God. The second marital step outlined by God is for man to cleave unto his wife. The language of cleaving points to a passionate and permanent adherence to one's spouse. A new kingdom with a new allegiance has now been established. So rich is its meaning that 1 Corinthians 6 says there are both sexual and spiritual components. Cleaving finds a gospel counterpart in the notion of faith or belief. In Joshua, the same Hebrew word for cleave, debak, is used and intermingled with the language of the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments and to cleave unto Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. As I, Howard Marshall, expressed, if repent was the negative side of the message of Jesus, the positive side was expressed by believe. Such belief was, to be sure, an acceptance of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul informed the jailer at Philippi, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
According to Steve M. Ashby, it is proper to think of repentance and faith as two sides of the same singular coin. Ashby explains, Christ's atoning work is universal in its scope and may be obtained by any sinner who will not resist the drawing and enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That right response is a response of faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin, which produces God's regenerating grace in the life of the sinner. We find the two united in the preaching of Jesus in Mark 1, 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This can be seen in how the believers in Thessalonica turned to the Lord Jesus Christ from their idols. When these passages are taken as a whole, it would seem that the meaning of one is always inherent in the other. Faith implies repentance and vice versa. It is worth mentioning that the concept of leaving and cleaving are equally as inseparable as faith and repentance. David M. Fouch writes, The point is that the man is to leave his parents solely for the purpose of becoming one flesh with his wife. In other words, he does not leave so that one day he might find himself in the position to cleave unto a wife. A worshipful creature by nature as worshipful creatures by nature, we will always find something or someone to cleave unto. Augustine wrote, The entire life of a good Christian is in fact an exercise of holy desire. You do not yet see what you long for, but the very act of desiring prepares you so that when he comes you may see and be utterly satisfied. So, my brethren, let us continue to desire, for we shall be filled. Such is our Christian life. By desiring heaven, we exercise the powers of our soul. Now, this exercise will be effective only to the extent that we free ourselves from desires leading to infatuation with this world. Like repentance and faith, leaving and cleaving are also two sides of the same coin. The third element of Genesis 2.24 is the direct and ultimate result of leaving and cleaving, namely, the two become one. What else ought we to expect from the playbook of the triune God than that his creation might image him? We can only reflect the glory of the Trinity when we shuck our pride and autonomy. Leaving and cleaving produces a divine unity. Thus Jesus can say, what God has brought together, let no man separate. So vivid is the language of this profound union that the doctrine of divorce is implicitly found here. John Calvin hones in on God's perpetual design for marriage. Now when Christ, in censuring the voluntary divorces of the Jews, adduces as his reason for doing it that it was not so from the beginning, he certainly commands this institution to be observed as a perpetual rule of conduct. The concept of one flesh finds anatomical, biological, spiritual, and emotional expression in the context of biblical marriage. What then is the gospel corollary to one flesh? In the same way that leaving and cleaving makes one of two, it is the presence of repentance and faith that constitutes a salvific union with Christ Jesus. For this reason, The Apostle Paul glories in the reality that the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Praise be to God for what he has done. 
As Victor P. Hamilton points out about the language of leaving and cleaving, already Scripture has sounded the note that marriage is a covenant rather than an ad hoc makeshift arrangement. Parallels of lesser importance. Consider now the fruit of this union. In the same way that this one flesh couple were both naked and were not ashamed, it is also true that there is now no condemnation for those who have cleaved unto Christ in faith. Furthermore, when shame did enter into man's picture, it was in the context of marriage that God addressed the problem. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They were the only two humans on earth. It was thus an act of marital mercy on God's part to clothe them. By lovingly, lovingly ministering to this married couple, God also established the pattern for sacrificial atonement. Again, it is within the context of marriage when we first see God tipping his hand concerning his plans in redemptive history. It is noteworthy that God himself is responsible for this union. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is also directly implied that only man in his corruption can dissolve it. Paul covers this ground in 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God forms both of these covenant relationships, but only man can end them. God cannot break faith, for it is contrary to his nature. Paul seems to draw a parallel between these two covenant relationships. The clear implication is that autonomy has no place in either relationship. For the Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Similarly, the Christian spouse must eschew autonomy. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Holy Scripture is unabashedly quick to draw parallels between marriage, sex, and some of the most sacred theological concepts found in the New Testament. This is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 6, 15-17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Or 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where prayer and sexual intercourse are referenced in the same verse. Such taboo mingling is not a problem for the New Testament writers. For as the author of Hebrews says, the marriage bed is holy. Thus, this truth freed Augustine to describe the work of Christ in the most intimate fashion. He came to the marriage bed of the cross, and there in mounting it, he consummated his marriage. And when he perceived the size of the creature, he lovingly gave himself up to the torment in place of his bride and joined himself to her forever. The point here is that the vernacular of marriage and soteriology are frequently intertwined. It is therefore not inappropriate within reason for us to garner insight from one realm for the other. It is also important to note that it is not a New Testament innovation to frame salvation in the language of marriage. 
In Isaiah, we read, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. With an eye to the future, Hosea predicts, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It is also worth noting that both of these covenants have a universal quality. It is through the marriage covenant that the families of the earth are made. It is through the covenant of grace that the families of the earth would be blessed. There is also an egalitarian character to both covenants. The Abrahamic covenant did not make immediate provision for the Gentiles. Additionally, unlike in baptism, only men partook of the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. Both the covenant of grace and the marriage covenant are truly for all. Paul was not writing empty words when he declared, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The conditionality of both covenants. It is not my intention to draw a connecting line between every detail of both covenants. Instead, I will show there is a symmetry within the basic framework of these two covenants that is difficult to unsee once it is recognized. That basic framework is faith. More specifically, that faith is the critical ingredient that activates and sustains both covenants. Beneath the expression of faith is an essential belief in the actual personhood of people who enter into a covenant relationship with one another or with God. F. Lee Roy Fourlines expressed this well. Being made in the image of God means that we are personal beings. We think, feel, and act. A person makes decisions or choices, regardless of how much influence is brought to bear upon the will or how much assistance is given. A person's actions are, in a very real sense, his own. That is what it means to be a person. While there is a divine, while there is divine aid for the Christian, he can resist this aid and make wrong choices. Among these wrong choices is the possibility of turning back to unbelief. God made us persons. In his, in, in his relationship with us, he never violates our personhood. We are deeply volitional beings. God is keenly concerned with the personal response of his creation to his son, whom he loves. The deliberate response that God is looking for is faith in the person work of his son, Jesus Christ. The conditional nature of salvation is one of the hallmarks of Reformed Arminian theology. Stephen Ashby states plainly, the condition of salvation is faith in Christ. Further, faith conditions the whole of salvation, not just its inception. If divine grace is resistible before conversion, it is also resistible after conversion. We do not cease to be volitional beings once we are in Christ. This is evidenced when Paul writes, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. These believers were secure as long as they continued. P. 
Peter clearly shows that faith activates the keeping power of God, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thus, Peter concludes the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. The writer of Hebrews affirms the need for continuance, both by the negative and by the positive. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Jesus points to a similar understanding of marriage. That is, marriage is conditioned on faith or faithfulness as well. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees inquire of Jesus whether or not it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. They are essentially asking if a marriage can be conditioned on anything they might choose. Jesus points them to unfaithfulness as the only proper grounds for divorce. Likewise, the Apostle Paul details a similar principle in 1 Corinthians 7.15. If an unbelieving spouse insists on walking away from the marriage, the believing spouse is free to remarry. In other words, it was unfaithfulness that brought about a legitimate end to their union. The unbelieving spouse did not continue. He broke faith with his wife. In Malachi, God describes this marital dynamic in the, dark, in the starkest language possible. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because you no longer regard the offering or accept it with favor from his hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with the portion of the the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirits and do not be faithless. In summary, they have torn apart the flesh that God made one. They did this by way of unfaithfulness. It is not so much the physical act of infidelity that brings about divorce. God highlights the internal condition. It is one's faithlessness to her and to the covenant. God calls this hatred and the one hatred uh, of the one you swore to love. An emphasis on the sin itself, or unconfessed sin, would be more congruent with the Wesleyan perspective. Again, God seems far more outraged with the internal issue of breaking faith. This is also highlighted in Jeremiah. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, You have seen what she did, the faithless one. Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her sister, and her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteress of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Again, it is faithlessness that produces this divorce. 
Craig S. Keener marks the consequential na- nature of divorce when commenting on Matthew 19, 1-9. He states, Roman law permitted either party to divorce the other, regardless of the other's wishes. Jewish law permitted only the husband to divorce the wife, regardless of her wishes. Matthew permits a disciple divorce only when the disciple's spouse has already irreparably ended the marriage. We are not called to merely confess that Jesus is Lord. We must abide in Him. If he or she does not abide, they are cut off and thrown into the fire. I once heard Stephen Ashby say, This is the judicial act of God. It cannot be otherwise, for they are cut off from the only source of life. Indeed, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We find a marital counterpart to abiding in the notion of cleaving. Paul brings the gospel to bear on, merit, on marital cleaving in Ephesians 5, 23 through 33, 20, 21 through 33. In short, it looks like mutual submission and self-sacrificing love. Timothy Keller, commenting on Ephesians 5.32, says, If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. The health and security of this relationship are not bound up in, are not bound up merely in some initial pledge of faithfulness. Rather, it is an ongoing orientation towards a person. One does not wake up each morning and reread the marriage license. Through the lens of the cross, they lovingly lay down their lives for one another. A person, not a vow, is the object of one's faithfulness. Love, more so even than integrity, is the driving force. Correspondingly, our spiritual condition is hinged on our response to the person of Jesus Christ. For the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The continuity of our salvation is not independent of Jesus Christ. We must cleave to Jesus. This is a Christ-honoring, Christ-centered soteriology, not a salvation that is based on some secret counsel of God. Instead, God elected us in Christ. God has shown us favor, for we cast ourselves upon His Son. The just shall live by faith. A narrative illustration and typology. And I'm th- this is an area I was thankful for, for Dr. Watts. I was actually preaching through Ruth when he kind of urged me to kind of develop this a little, little further, and so this this come in handy. But um, a narrative illustration and typology. A possible expression of these covenantal dynamics may be found in the story of Ruth. It's hard to imagine an Old Testament book that's meaning and significance was more upended by the coming of Jesus. Pardon that dogmatic statement. The first five verses set the heartbreaking stage. Naomi, her husband, and two sons left Bethlehem in search of food. Naomi's family ended up settling in Moab. While living in Moab, she acquired two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, but lost her husband and both sons. Like Job, Naomi attributed her misfortune to God. Unlike Job, she was not convinced of God's care for her. With great emotion and economy, Naomi communicates the perceived disposition of God toward her. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. It is not an exaggeration of the text to say that Naomi feels forsaken, even stricken by God. Not surprisingly, Naomi decides that it is best if she returns to Bethlehem. Contrary to Naomi's urging, Orpah and Ruth decide to leave Moab with their mother-in-law. However, Naomi persists. She explains that they are likely choosing a life of perpetual widowhood if they return with her. Upon hearing, Naomi's, upon hearing Naomi count the cost for them, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah turned back to her people and to her gods. But Ruth continued with Naomi. In this story, we see a dramatization of the covenantal faith, faithfulness described in Genesis 2.24. Ruth is clearly the heroine of Abrahamic faithfulness, while Orpah was seemingly the spiritual daughter of Hymenaeus and Alexander. It might be appropriate to think of Orpah and Ruth as salvific types so as to not unduly condemn or commend or commend or condemn either woman. Both women began the journey to the promised land. Both initially resisted Naomi's pleas to turn back. Orpah eventually kisses Naomi and turns back. Ruth clings to Naomi and continues. The typology is only partially seen in Ruth's cleaving. The other side of the coin comes into view through Orpah's turning back. It is the contrast that brings the picture into focus. F.B. Huey Jr. remarks, the Hebrew word order places the noun Ruth ahead of the verb debak, thus emphasizing the contrast between the responses of the two women. Orpah kissed goodbye, but Ruth clung. Better are the injurious words of a faithful friend than the kiss of an enemy. Ruth meets the requirement of a disciple in that she forsakes all that she has to follow Naomi. Not only did Ruth ignore Naomi's command, but she responded with her own imperative. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. She is essentially pleading with Naomi not to lead her into temptation. Ruth then offers up a pledge of commitment that Leon Morris describes as a classical expression of faithfulness. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Though Orpah is returning to her own people and gods, Ruth is casting her lot with Naomi in every imaginable way. Naomi saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded. Obstinance looks like a virtue on Ruth. Ruth's was a repentance without regret. Yes, Ruth would indeed receive redemption, but only because she clave to the one who was forsaken and smitten by God. Ald elaborates on Ruth's determination to even be buried with Naomi. Ruth's words go beyond the familiar till you are parted by death of the marriage service. She and Naomi will not be parted even in death. It is these words that mark her irrevocable break with Moab. Ruth's commitment is total, not just in intensity, but also in duration. The point is only made more clear when one considers the historical context of the story. Ruth is a story that takes place in the period of Judges, a period that is marked by nothing if not apostasy. 
In Ruth, God has said, breaks up apostasy's monopolizing control of man. This Gentile woman shows us a different way that stood out even to the residents of Bethlehem, faithfulness. Summary and conclusions. It is clear that both Old and New Testament writers draw connections between these two covenants. Both covenants were intended to bring about a godly offspring. Leaving and cleaving are to marriage what faith and repentance are to salvation. Both leaving and cleaving and faith and repentance produce a union that God desires to be perpetual. Both covenants are conditioned upon the continuance of faith. Divorce is to marriage what apostasy is to salvation. Breaking faith dissolves both covenants. All of this might lead one to question, why is God willing to make allowance for divorce and apostasy? After all, God desires relational continuity. I believe the answer is found in the very meaning of the word covenant. F.F. Bruce offers a simple definition. An agreement between two people or two groups that involves promises on the part of each to the other. A covenant must be mutual. God respects the personhood of his creation. He chooses to redeem his creation by means of influence and response, not cause and effect. Neither Moses, Malachi, Paul, nor any other biblical writer wrote to affirm the thoughts of Jacob Arminius. That obvious point aside, the biblical parameters of marriage and divorce do indeed coincide with key elements of Reformed Arminian theology. Further, it is Scripture itself that invites us to consider these parallels. It would be unwise to deconstruct every piece of, it, every piece of any given parable of Jesus to construct a theology, but there is all, always at least one lesson to be found in the whole. In the case of this discussion, the whole reminds us that God is a covenant-keeping God. He invites us to be holy as He is holy, to be faithful as He is faithful. Yes. Would you say that there's a correlation between marriage and our relationship with God? That if we, in a marriage, if you bring another person in or have a spouse that's cheating, it ruins the marriage in the same way in our relationship with God. If we have things that we put in our lives in front of God, it will eventually possibly ruin the relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the general, I guess you would say, the, the general concept of the, the thesis um, of, of it. Of both of both relationships being uh, sustained on on faithfulness, um, and now that's really you know that's that's an ingredient that can't be pushed aside. I mean, it's 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 absolutely essential to say the least. So yeah.
Right. Um, so again, I appreciated so much the way you were restrained in doing that. And so, that, well, what did you find? And then secondly, as you ended talking about marriage, divorce, those kind of things, why, why do you think we don't have that, that emphasis now that this taking it stronger? Is it just culture or, or do you see it? Again, we're talking about America, obviously, but, but do you see that? Why, why don't we put a little more, this is such a big deal and, and this is a picture of this or, or could be a picture of this. Do you, do you see that or, or just, uh, or you don't? Why, why do you think we don't see that? Anyway, those two questions. Yeah, as far as the sort of the, the safety, the guardrails there, yeah. um, I don't know that I had a, um, a you know real intentional uh, plan initially for dealing with that. I do I do know that as I thought this through and started you know seeing if this worked out, mm-hmm. um, you know I, obviously you start seeing a a boogeyman in every shadow. You, everything everything out there starts to become support for for what you're what you're trying to construct. Um, and so I tried to be, the, I guess really people were my safeguard. I, I, I called people, I called, you know, Jeff Blair and Dr. Ashby and uh, even before Dr. Marbury's passing, I'd, I'd um, kind of worked a lot of this past him and, and um, just, just because I've, I told somebody the other day, I've said I've, I've had a lot of original ideas, um, but they ter- all turn out to be original for a good reason because they're terrible ideas. <laughs> And other, everybody else before me was smart enough not to attempt that, and so I, you know, I just kind of thought this would be, you know, something. So I, you know, I just I tried just to incorporate brothers in my life to say, is this, is there, any, is there merit to this, okay. you know? And and so, um, and and most people were pretty, you know, encouraging through that process. Your second question, I'm not, I'm not real certain what you're asking. You're real strong. You, you ended really strongly. You know, this is like faithfulness. This is, you know, you were making some hard. We don't, yes. We don't talk that way. We don't. Is that is that out of our over compassion or is that? Yeah, I probably should have. I probably should have couched that in more subject subjective language. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I you know, and I, I intend I intended to try to be a bit more, you know, to emphasize, and that was I didn't I, I forgot to reference Jeff that in my introduction, uh, that was Jeff Blair's language. It's more about more about probing than proving. Uh, I think I borrowed that from him in a conversation that, that we had. So I tried initially, as I set out about this, to say, all right, let's just kind of start this conversation. And originally I thought, I'm just going to write this up and, and just send it to some members of the commission to see if, if, if they want to take it somewhere, if they want to, you know. And then eventually I just thought, well, maybe I could write it myself or whatever. But, um, but I, tried to, I tried to couch it in that language of maybe, Maybe this is a possibility of what's going on here. But the more I looked at it, I just thought it just it just seemed it just seemed fairly tidy, to be honest with you. It just um, it just the whole leaving and cleaving one in one flesh, faith and repentance, union with Christ, conditionality of both covenants, faith as the basis. It, it just I don't know. It just seemed to work. Uh, just a comment more uh, a few to piggyback off of what you said a few years ago um, I was interviewing some people for membership in my church and I was explaining to them apostasy you know our, our, our view, views on apostasy and what we believe and uh, the, the woman who uh, she was with her husband she and her husband and the, the wife said oh kind of like uh, we divorced God 
And she, yeah. she paralleled it exactly to that. Yeah. And I said, well, yeah, that's exactly, you know, uh, kind of like marriage in that, yeah. in that regard. So, uh, you know, it, it does carry over with, with uh, the layperson in, the, in those terms. So. Yeah, that's good. Dr. Pepperelli? I was just going to add to what you and he had exchanged there a moment ago and what he added to. Analogy never proves anything. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not a good analogy. Yeah. It is a good analogy. Uh, and you're basing it on the frequent biblical connection between marriage and God's relationship to his people. Uh, certainly gives it some standing as an analogy, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I felt since, you know, Paul had kind of already started going down that road in Ephesians chapter 5 that I was at least on, on decent ground to explore it. Um, Dr. Watts? I was just going to say something that occurred to me and the brother who had to step out commented on this, you know, the, um, you know, taking analogies and how they break down, you know, someone would say, well, wait a minute, though, divorce and remarriage, you know, you are able to remarry and that's where mm -hmm. we break down, you know, if you have an irremediable view of apostasy where it's a final departure from the faith, there's no... But the, the interesting thing about that is how in Matthew where the point, it seems, of issuing a certificate of divorce is actually to protect the woman so that as she moves on with her life, she cannot come back and be reclaimed by the husband as a spouse at some later point. So at least in the Matthean approach, if I understand it right, it's, it's final in that you're not going to be remarrying this person. Yeah. So that would actually lend support to the parallel or the analogy, which is that if one were to apostatize, it is a, by its very nature, it's a final apostasy, just like it's a true divorce from the original spouse. Uh, does that make it, sense? It does make sense. It, and, 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 and yeah, and if, if, and if we apostatize, we will, we will remarry. I mean, we'll remarry someone, ourselves, Usually, <laughs> someone will take that new relationship for us, or we cleave to something or someone. I mean, but yeah, I think that's, I, I hadn't thought about uh, the whole, what you're saying there with that decree. Uh, that would have been really good to add. That's very helpful. Any more questions? We've still got 10 minutes left. <laughs> May I ask another that doesn't have anything to do with the content of the paper? Yeah. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm addressing it to you and to anybody here. Okay. Uh, since you've dealt with marriage, um, I have become interested in, in recent years about the issue, why does the state control marriage rather than the church? So all I'm asking is if you know any sources, any treatments of that, how marriage is legal in the eyes of the state and it's managed by the state rather than being married, managed by the church. I would like for you maybe after the session or whatever to point me to the sources because I'm interested in doing some reading and researching on that subject. <clears throat> okay. Nothing comes to mind. States tend to want to take over everything. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The liturgy for um, for marriage is very like the church. There was a sense of blessing unions, but it was almost recognized as a component of as a as a state issue. So, so the church might recognize it, but as as far as the development of Christian worship concept of marriage, significantly late. Uh, really doesn't develop until after you have a what you might refer to as a Western Christendom. I heard it said at a conference, I don't know about resources because I've not researched this particular, particular question at length, but I've heard it said at a conference that marriage is not given just to Christians, it's given to the race of man. Insofar as state is the is society, and society comes out of fill the earth, it, uh, it's there before, say, you have the church. Yeah. At least in the way that we think about it. But I just heard that anecdotally, I've not spent time, a lot of time with that question. I think it's always been understood in the broader reform tradition that it's a common grace institution. Now how you work that out vis-a-vis state and all of that, I think there's a lot of a lot of history and political history that one would have to delve into there. That's what I'm interested in, somebody who delved into the history of that. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't know I wouldn't know where to Word of point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If there's no other questions, I guess we'll take our break at this time and then we'll reconvene at 315 for our next presentation. Thank you.